my goal going into Western States was just to have a smarter and better experience than I did in 2018. I took a full week off when everybody was in like their peak weeks. I was like totally resting, like zero exercise whatsoever. And uh, I think if I hadn't done that, then the outcome of Western States would have been much, much different. That was Ailsa McDonald. And this is episode 94 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today, we welcome Elsa McDonald back to the podcast to talk about her recent performance at Western States Endurance Run, where she finished an impressive second female and 15th overall. Her previous performance at Western States in 2018 her, earned her a 45th overall finish and provided her with some wisdom and unfinished business. She returned this year stronger and wiser than ever and took everyone, except us, by surprise as she worked her way up the field to finish very, very strongly. In this episode, we talk about some of the keys to her success, including going into the race very rested, which included not running at all for a week when all of her competitors were peaking going in well-nourished and not underweight, having a race plan that involved a 90-mile warm-up and a 10-mile effort, running completely within herself in zone 1-2 the entire race, trekking all the hills, yes, all the hills, and practicing patience and humility. Ailsa is one strong, grounded, elite ultra runner who at age 41 still has many great performances left in her. Her top three finish at Western States earns her an automatic entry to both Western States and UTMB next year. Keep listening to find out what her plans are for 2023. So Elsa, welcome back to the Inspired Souls podcast. We're, we're happy to talk to you again today. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it'll be good to chat. For sure. We're really excited uh, to hear all about your your 2022 Western States experience. Uh, Carolyn and I were both glued to the live feed for hours and hours and hours. So excited to see the whole race, but in particular, your really surgical precision of moving up and up and up and finally finishing in, in the strong second place that you did. So we're just going to dive right in there. Um, Elsa was on our podcast, oh, approximately three months ago in episode 81. So if anybody wants to hear lots of details about, um, you know, uh, her, her background and her history, you can go back and listen to episode 81. We'll link it in the show notes. Today, we're just going to dive right in there and talk about the race. So Elsa, congratulations. As we said in the intro, you, you ran so strong. You can be so proud. Canada is so proud of you. And let's just start off with a little bit of the pre the pre race period. So, did you do anything different or special in your training and in the the days leading up to the race this time that maybe you didn't do before? I took some rest when I was feeling tired, and I did an extra long taper, uh, longer than I would normally for a hundred miler. So, um, a few weeks out from the race, I had just done a big training block, and I I still. The week I went back to work, I was planning on doing like just a few like easier runs, like maybe a bit of a lighter week, but it was funny. I was really exhausted and I wasn't really enjoying the training and we had a really busy set at work. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to take the entire week off. So I did. I, I took a full week off when everybody was in like their peak weeks. I was like totally resting, like zero mm -hmm. exercise whatsoever. And uh, I think if I hadn't done that, then the outcome of Western States would have been much, much different. 
because mm. I was able to come out of that rest week feeling really refreshed and energetic and, and ready to go kind of thing. The extra long taper, it was hard, but uh, definitely think paid off. Like normally I, normally I do about a week where I really, really uh, back off. But this time I took a full two weeks, backed off the mileage, backed off the intensity, made sure I ate lots of really good nutritious food, went into it a, a little bit heavier, you know, like a, on the heavier end of my weight scale, which I, th- I think is really smart going into an altar because you do tend to lose anywhere from like six to 8% of your body fat, which is, which is a huge, um, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a, a, a big, a big deal. And so, you know, nobody likes to, to put on a few extra pounds, but I think in this situation, it definitely paid off and, and they're gone in the day anyway. So. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, can I ask, I, I'd love to dig into that part of what you just said a little bit, because I think what holds people back from doing an extra long taper or really listening to their body and pulling back is, is just, they don't have the confidence to trust that this strategy could possibly work when on social media, you're seeing all your competitors in their peak weeks and, and posting stuff. So how did you have the confidence to trust yourself in this respect? Just with experience, I think um, I've always found that whenever I've got into a, a race with a longer taper, I've always done better. And whenever I've gone in like on the heavier end of my weight scale, I've always done better. I feel stronger. And the, the taper is a tricky process because as you all know, it's, it, it's an emotional and physical roller coaster. you know, like some days you feel fantastic. And then the next day you feel like crap. You feel like, Oh, how about I, I can't even run one mile, never mind a hundred. So you, <laughs> those that's, days you're like, I gosh, mean. am I going to be, am I going to be able to do this? But you, you do, you really have to put a lot of trust in the process and my body's always come around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also in our other episode, we talked a lot, well, we, we touched on your other Western States. You had done Western States, I believe in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and that one maybe didn't turn out the way that you had expected or hoped. Um, And so with this one, again, that taper sort of longer taper, like people go, they call it the taper madness or the taper crazy tantrums. There's lots of lovely terms to describe yeah. sort of what happens to the mind in that period of time when you're getting ready for a big event like this. So how did sort of the outcome of last Western States combined with maybe the taper madness and the extra time to think, um, how did that play into your mindset going into the race? My goal going into this race was to not have a repeat of the 2018 Western States. <laughs> so um, I just want, I wanted to go in rested. I wanted to not get too caught up in the competition, pace myself properly, not chase the lead pack early on, not go out too hard. Uh, so I made sure that I, that I, that I did all those things. Yeah. And you did. So I, I, I had a race strategy and I followed it. I stuck to it. Yeah. Awesome. So that was going to be my next question was, yeah, what was your strategy going in? Um, and you really did like you just a few stats. I just looked up, you were in 45th place at the top of the escarpment. So, you know, very conservative, uh, relatively speaking, uh, to the top of the escarpment. Um, and then ran in about 24th to 20th overall place, not female, but overall place for, for really the majority of the race until you started moving, moving up in the end. So we'll get into all those details, um, in, in a minute, but 
you had a strategy and, and you stuck to it. But I also would like to just skip back to the, the last race before Western States that you did was Whiskey Basin, I think. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you had a super strong race there as well, following, I think, of quite a similar strategy of running quite conservatively and consistently through the race and ended up winning it. Oh, right. Did I get that right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, Carolyn was asking about potentially taper tantrums and comparison to last Western States, but you also had, I would think, a bit of a confidence boost and a really strong last race before States. Well, Whiskey Basin was a bit of an eye-opener, actually, because even though I had a really good result, my body didn't feel good in that race. I didn't feel good doing it. Oh, really? Yeah, like I I really struggled. I was getting sore early in the race. My joints hurt, and I couldn't take in nutrition. And I I think it it allowed me to kind of correct. I had a little bit of a few nutritional deficiencies going going into that race, and and I'm kind of glad I did it because it, it gave me the time to correct it before Western States. So I was feeling much, much better going into States. But in Whiskey Basin, I... I was probably mentally stronger than I've ever been in my life because even though I felt as bad as I did, I was not quitting. And yeah, I had to slow down and and manage my pace accordingly. And and that race was also run at elevation, which um, I had never done before. I mean, Western States, you start at 6,000 feet, you hit 8,000, and then you you drop from there. So you are at elevation, but never for a very long period of time. Whereas at Whiskey Basin, the whole race is at 6,000 feet. And uh, I never really took that into consideration. And I think that might have been part of the reason why I wasn't able to take in a lot of nutrition. So I did actually have some struggles in that race. And uh, I'm glad I did, because uh, it did allow me to change some things and, and fix some things. But the recovery from that late race took a bit longer than I wanted it to because I wasn't able to take in nutrition. So um, and just for context, how far ahead of states yeah. was Whiskey Basin? Whiskey Basin was April 23rd. So what's that? 10 weeks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into talking about the race now. So um, you're in Squaw Valley. Let's just start with the heat. Everybody was talking about the heat, you know, one of the 10 hottest years. I understand it was already quite warm at the start line. How did you feel the, you know, the day before the race and, and going into it? Oddly enough, I didn't feel the heat. Um, okay. I was actually really surprised at my post-race interview when they said that it was one of the eighth hottest years in history. Cause I was like, cause I had said in my interview, like it was much cooler than I did it in 2018. So I don't know if it was just a pace management thing. Uh, I definitely felt the heat, but, um, it wasn't as hot in the morning. Like it felt quite cool in the morning when we started at, in comparison to 2018 mm-hmm. and, uh, it, it stayed cool for quite a long time. And then when we, of course, when you get into the canyons, it's hot. And I did feel the heat in there. But like I said, I just, I just managed my pace better than I did before. So I was able to manage the heat because of that. But yeah, I didn't find it overly hot. And I even found it got quite cool when the sun went down, which I remember in 2018 suffering in the heat. And I thought, I can't wait till the sun goes down. So it cools down a bit. And when the sun went down, it almost felt like it was worse because it was like humid and Mm. like, sticky <laughs> so okay. yeah so yeah I, I think it was just a, a pace management this time that I was able to manage it better did you spend any more time in Phoenix um in this year than in previous years potentially or was that the same 
Uh, no, it's about the same. Well, I mean, other than COVID years when I didn't go at right. all. <laughs> right. But yeah, right. no. We have an infrared sauna at home. So I did use that quite a bit before going into Western States. So I don't know if maybe that helped, but I've always been pretty good at managing the heat. I mean, most of my hundred milers have been in extreme heat. So um, I'm just, I think just because of my size, I, I manage it mm-hmm. better than most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, let's just break it into thirds, you know, the first 30 miles. Um, your strategy was to, to be conservative. Um, was it hard or would you, were you just completely running your own race and, and not dealing with any of those, that, that push and pull within your head of wanting to go out harder? Yeah, I was, I was very, very patient. I, um, I went out really easy. I was, like you said, I was what, 50th place hitting the top of the escarpment and felt really good. And because I was facing myself properly, I was really easy. I was able to take in more calories and and fuel my body better. So I think that really helped me in the latter stages of the race. When we got to the first aid station, the top 10 women were, were really tight and I was up there with them. I was actually really surprised when I came into the second one and I was actually catch starting to catch up to some of the, you know, third, fourth place, place women. And I ran with a few of them for a while. And so, yeah, I, I, even though I was really pacing myself, I seemed like everybody else was too, because we were all really close together for like the first, probably 50 miles of the race. It was mm-hmm. pretty crazy actually. What's that like when you come up on one of the third or fourth place women and you start running with them for a little bit? Paint us a picture of like the vibe of that moment when you're, you know, because whenever I'm in a race and someone comes up on me, it's like, oh, shoot, <laughs> like, <this> person, <laughs> who is this person? You know, is there is there some of that or is it very friendly? And it's very friendly. I, I think for me this time, I, I dealt with it much better than I did in 2018. So in 2018, when I was kind of I went out in the lead pack and then I started to fall back. Of course, I was like, every time somebody would catch up to me or, or pass me, it would be a little bit demoralizing, right? But because I went out into this race with such a different attitude, I found that um, I was able to run with the other women and enjoy the miles I spent with them and kind of encourage them on their race as well as them on mine. So it was, there was a lot of camaraderie on the course, like a, a lot of teamwork and um congratulating other people and encouraging other people along the course. So it, it was, it was really awesome. Going out of the second aid station, I ran with uh, three other women for a while. Uh, Keely Henniger was one of them and she was having a phenomenal race and she was really strong. So I ran with her for a while, but I couldn't keep up with her. So yeah, I just, it didn't bother me at all when she, she broke away. I just, I just let her go. I knew like, okay, we're only, I don't know, maybe 30 miles into the race at the time. I'm, I wasn't going to chase anything at that point. So. Right. And um, we were just talking a few minutes ago about Reed Coolset, who is another Canadian um, runner that is his first hundred mile. And, you know, uh, you were running, you know, with him for a period of time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was really cool actually to, to share some miles with a fellow Canadian. So had you met him before or was it like, hi, fellow Canadian, you know, when you're like in another country and you run into a Canadian, there's almost like a kindred spirit that just comes from <laughs> knowing that you're from the same country. Like what were you meeting him for the first time on the trail? I met him for the first time on the trail. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, and so how long did you run together with him? We ran together for quite a bit, actually. Um, I would say probably, probably an hour or more. Cool. So that's awesome. Yeah. 
All right. So we're now moving into, you know, the, the midday period, the next 30 mile chunk. You already mentioned that you managed the heat just fine. What were you eating? Like what kind of things do you, do you use for nutrition during a race, especially during the heat? Yeah, I carry a variety of snacks <laughs> just to because uh, I never know what I'm gonna gonna crave during a hundred miler. So, but I have my staples. Like I always have some chips, some candy, so like sweet and salty. But um, I I try and eat solid foods as long as I can. So I had some peanut butter wraps. I had some Lara bars. I did carry a couple of gels uh, just to kind of supplement in between, and ate a couple of McDonald's hash browns. <laughs> so you carry a lot of your own food. Yeah, I do. I carry all my own food. And then my, my crew had food for me as well at the aid station. So. Okay. I went, now I was going to ask about your crew. So who did you have crewing for you this race? It was my husband and my friends, Dave and Leslie Roach. So. Okay. Excellent. That's, that's a good crew. <laughs> now, David is your coach. Uh, no, no, no. Um, okay. This is a different David Roach. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah, Leslie. Yeah, yeah. not Megan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not Megan. Okay. Which is it's kind yeah. of funny because <laughs> my Dave Roach always says he actually contacted the uh, Dave Roach coach, and they actually met at Western States and got a picture taken together. <laughs> but yeah, they're both both Dave Roach, both spelt the same way. So it's it's been kind of a a, a joke since I started ultra running. But um, okay, Dave Dave and Leslie are our friends of ours that we've been uh, hanging out with for years and we travel really well together and they've done, uh, they've crewed almost all of my races now. So my crew knows me really well. They know what I need and our transitions are super efficient. So. So maybe for those of us who aren't as familiar now, this was my very first like real intense watching of Western States. I was glued. I was so into it. I was, Kim was very proud of me. I, I was think. so proud of <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was into it. So for those, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this race, with this course, can you just broadly break it down for us? Like where are your, your aid stations and checkpoints? Where were you seeing this crew? It's a, it's a long way before I saw them the first time. So I saw them at 50K, 90K, uh, 127K, 150K. There was another one in there. I can't remember where. 140. So a couple, a little extra in the back half. But the first half, you're running for long periods of time without a crew. So. You have eight stations. You're just not crew access. Yes, there's eight stations. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you said this crew, your crew didn't ever run with you. You never had a crew person that, that like joined you for bits of the, the race. Yeah. I've, I don't use a pacer. I've never used a pacer. Okay. Okay. I was going to ask that if this was something that is just routine for you or you just chose not to at States. Yeah. I just kind of like to go it alone. I, I never know what kind of mood I'm going to be in at the end of a, an ultra. Cause usually your pacer is only allowed to join you for the last miles. <clears throat> so at Western States, I think it's like the last 20 or 30 miles, whatever it is, but um, I'm totally okay to go it alone and, and kind of prefer it. So I choose not to use a pacer. Yeah. Okay. Um, back to, to heat management. The big thing this year was, <laughs> you know, in previous years you have ice in the pack and ice in the bandana and ice in the hats. This year, everybody was dumping ice in their pants. And I, you know, the core was the big thing, right? Is, is, is yeah. ice, you know, all around your core. Did you use ice at all? And if so, can I ask where? <laughs> I, I just tucked it in my sports bra. I found okay, that was the yeah. best way. And it has the sponges in the cold water. And I use like um, 
a cooling bandana around my neck, which along the way you can kind of dunk into, um, like there's quite a few river crossings and stuff. So you can use water on the course too. So I would just wet that and it stays cool for quite a long time. Um, but there was actually times where I put like the ice in my, my sports bra. It was too cold. So I ended up taking it out. So, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Like a, a lot of people use like the ice vests and stuff like that. And at one aid station, they put um, ice in my, in the back of my vest, but it, it didn't really do anything for me. I couldn't really feel it. So I didn't bother to do it anymore, but the, the cold water and the ice in the bra was, were my main tactics for heat management. Mm-hmm. I think we have a little bit of an advantage there as, as female runners, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I always wonder how the guys do it. <laughs> They're great. They're great for carrying like gels and <laughs> ice. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I agree. I've even, yeah, <laughs> we won't talk about <laughs> what you could put in your bra, but it's a, it's a handy pocket. Um, okay. Uh, before I forget, I'm just asking these questions as they pop into my brain. Shoes. What shoes, what gear were you wearing? Did you wear the special carbon shoe that Saucony now has or what did you have <laughs> on your feet? I did actually. I used the carbon shoe in the last mile. I, I started with the Peregrines because um, okay. the first part of the course is very technical. The carbon shoes are better for like less technical, more runnable single track kind of thing. So I knew the back half of the course was pretty safe to wear them and they're a fairly new shoe, so I haven't had a lot of time in them. So I didn't want to risk running the whole course in them. Um, I've ran in Peregrines for the last 15 years, so I know that they're my most trusted shoe. Uh, really glad I did wear them because the course was actually a lot more technical than what I remember. So I wore those. I wore the Peregrines until after I got across the Rucky Chucky. And then I changed into the, um, the new carbon shoe and finished in those. Trail carbon shoe. Wow. That's so cool. So how did they feel? Did you actually feel like they were faster? Did they feel, you know, springy? What did you find in the, you know, and I asked this in the context of the last 20 to 30 miles of a hundred miler, right? When your feet aren't feeling that springy, did you feel like the shoe made a difference for you? I, I think they did that they're a much softer shoe and more cushy. So to put them on after running 130 kilometers to change into a cushy shoe is such a nice feeling. So in that respect, yeah, they were really comfortable on my feet. Uh, The last 30K of the course are mostly runnable. There are some like rocky sections and I found that the shoe was a little bit slippery on on any loose rock. But other than that, uh, yeah, I was moving. I was able to move pretty swiftly. I think the shoes did help. I think they are faster, but I on that kind of terrain, but I wouldn't wear them on like super technical stuff. Okay. Good to know. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of river crossings, but this, the one that you just talked about, the, is it the Rucky Chucky? <laughs> um, again, like I'm watching for the first time, I had no idea. So this is, qu- paint us a little picture too, for anyone that might not be familiar about this river. It's like a substantial river crossing. Like there's a rope in you. There was people in the water. I I presume in case somebody <laughs> like needed a little bit of assistance or something. So tell us about the river crossings. Yeah, sometimes it's actually so high that they use a boat to do the crossing. Uh, The both times I've done states, it's just been the rope and you just you're able to to cross it because it's not too, too deep. But it's probably like in most places around up to my waist. But we get to there's places where you can dunk in and just soak your whole body because at that point it just feels good. (laughs) It's a nice cooling mechanism. Yeah. Did you take a moment to do that? Yeah, definitely. I looked I was looking forward to that river crossing. (laughs) Just for that purpose. 
Right. So it cooled you down. You're, but you're now soaking wet. Like you literally swam, went swimming. Like you, yeah. everything got wet. And so then, was it right after that that you changed into the other shoes? You got some dry stuff. And then, what at what point of the race is this? It's like quite towards the end, isn't it? Yeah, it's about 125k in. So at 127k is when I saw my crew and I changed my shoes. There, I I don't worry about my clothes. They're they've been wet since the start of the race from sweat and dunking in rivers and soaking in sponges. So, um, okay, yeah, you just finish in the same clothes. But, but dry socks, dry shoes, <laughs> dry socks, dry shoes for sure. Yeah. Okay. So what does a body feel like when you've run 125k and you still have like almost 40 to go? <laughs> um, you definitely start to, you definitely start to get sore and break down physically and mentally, but you just have to keep focusing on like the next aid station or you know, like really break it down into small chunks. So, um, yeah, you, you can't think like, Oh gosh, I have 40 K left and I feel this way, but, um, yeah, you just, you just keep moving forward at whatever pace you have. But I'm watching you on, on my screen and truthfully, and, and I notice this with most of the people in the top 10, I would say, I'm like looking for signs that you're breaking down. Like I'm looking for form breakdown or like limps and all this. And and honestly, a lot of the people in the top 10 looked pretty darn good at kilometer 160 <laughs> as they did at, you know, kilometer 10. So how, 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 you, how, Elsa, your form yes. is amazing coming amazing. into the last mile. I was just like, wow. And you run on a track, right? For, for like, a, you do your yeah. sort of victory lap thing and you come in on a track. So like I'm watching and, and you looked amazing. So really your body was hurting. Didn't look like it. Oh yeah. Well, you don't, you don't show your weaknesses. As soon as you start to focus on what's hurting, then you start to fall apart. So like, after we ran through the high country and it was pretty wet this year. And then you do like a, a really, really long descent at Western States, like probably 25 K. So, and it's dusty. So you go from having your feet wet to going through dusty areas that all this like fine dust gets into your shoe. And then you do this long, long descent. So after that, like your feet are hamburger. It's my feet were so sore. And then coming into um, forest Hill, which is about 100k. That's where I saw my crew. Um, you run on pavement for quite a while, and that's like one of the hottest sections of the course. So now, like, you've got really sore feet. They're wet. Your toenails are lifting. You've got this sand in your shoes. It's like sandpaper, and then you run on this like super hot tarmac. So it's like it's like running across hot coals with sore feet. So I was I was in a lot of pain there, and I thought I can't think about my feet. I can't think about my feet. Right. <laughs> so. But again, how, like when your feet are hurting so much, how do you train yourself to not focus on it? You just have to dig deep mentally and try and think about something else. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. And, and I guess you do that a hundred thousand times in training really, right? Yeah. And it, at what I look forward to um, at States is, is changing into new shoes. So that was what kind of, kept me going was like, okay, I got to make it to this age station so I can put on new shoes and get fresh feet. Yes. I would imagine it's always like that coming into aid stations, right? It's mentally chunks down the race for you. Like, okay, I'm looking to forward to the next aid station and to see my people, to change my shoes, to get some calories or whatever. Um, is that sort of how you mentally break the race down into aid stations? Yeah, definitely. Especially okay. seeing my crew along the way, like that's probably one of the biggest morale boosters of 
running a hundred miles or an ultra just seeing familiar faces along the way. The aid stations are really good too. I, I love to see the people at the aid stations and, and get some mm-hmm. encouragement from them, but definitely seeing my crew is, is probably the highlights of my, of my day. Okay. So let's, let's go back to the actual, um, race and, and how, um, you know, for, I'm, I don't have exact distance markers here. Uh, but basically for a large part of the race, you ran in 10th, 11th female position. Then you started and, you know, a little, little, um, leapfrogging at different points where you moved up. Then you were consistently around sixth and then, you know, started to move up in the placings to eventually finish in as second female. So, I remember on our last podcast that we had with you, you said something that I just love. It was like, you don't have to be fast. You just have to slow down the least. And (laughs) I'm wondering, um, again, I have placings, but not necessarily paces of everybody around you. What was your perception of how the last, you know, that period of time when you moved from sixth to second, was everybody else slowing down? Were you speeding up? Like what, how much urgency did you feel? Were you pushing at that point? Like, where were you? What was happening out there on the course? Um, going into this race, I kind of joked that I was going to do a 90-mile warm-up and then a 10-mile effort. Okay. <laughs> and, and so that's, every time I saw my crew, they're like, oh, how you doing? I'm like, well, well, I'm like 50 miles into my warm-up, so I'm almost time to get going, you know? <laughs> so it, it kind of became this joke, but I, I did kind of have that in my back of my head that every time like I hit a hill and, and my heart rate would go up a little bit, I thought oh, I got to dial back because we're still in the warm up. <laughs> so I think that that really helped my pacing. Um, I was really trying not to focus too much on uh, placement for this race because that's kind of where, where and why I blew up um, in 2018. It was just, I charged too soon. So I just kept really patient and then, um, when I came into Forest Hill, I was in fourth place and somebody told me I was just a few minutes behind Camille Heron. Mm -hmm. Now going into this race, um, I didn't really have uh, a goal to place. Like I said, my, my goal going into Western States was just to have a smarter and better experience than I did in 2018. But I really wanted to place top 10 because that's kind of a big deal at, at States. And um, with the new UTMB uh, qualification process, the top three from Western States got get, you get your ticket to UTMB and, and I want to go back to that race next year. So I was kind of joking with the guys that I, I trail run with because um, we're all trying to get our entries to UTMB. They're like, well, you just have to place top three at Western States and you're in. I'm like, <laughs> honestly, I don't think that's a realistic goal for me based on the competition that I'm going up against. You know, like not that I'm not confident in my abilities, but I'm 42 in a couple of weeks. I'm, you know, not getting any younger and I'm, I'm up against like some really young, very talented women. So I wanted to keep my goals realistic and I thought top 10 was realistic. So I didn't really think about the top three. So when I, when I moved into fourth place, Camille was just ahead of me and I thought I'm not going to charge like man, if I finish fourth place, that's really awesome. And this was at kilometer hundred. So I think by the next aid station, Camille had slowed down. She ran into some problems actually. So she was slowing down. So I passed her and then I thought, Holy, Holy cow. Like I'm in, I'm in third place now. Like this is, this is like a UTMB qualifier. So I'm like, this would be really cool, but you know, there's still a lot of race left. So I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get too focused on this position right now. And so I just kept going at my pace and then I caught up to um, Emily Hoggood 
and she was slowing down. I was still feeling pretty strong. So she was kind of walking a bit on the flats and I thought, okay, she's, she's slowing down a bit. So I, I passed her and then I stayed in that second place position and I just kind of kept trucking along at the pace that I was going, which I feel like I ran a really strong race from start to finish. So, um, yeah, once I moved into second, I, I felt pretty confident I was able to hold that position. Mm-hmm. And are you aware, like you mentioned, you you knew you were, you knew the position that you were in. So when you moved into second, you knew you were in second, but were you aware of like how far back third was at all? Like, do people t- give you intel? Um, sometimes my crew would tell me where exactly. And sometimes they would tell you at the aid stations too, like going through one of the aid stations, um, they told me that uh, first place was 25 minutes ahead or whatever. And I'm like, that's a, that's a huge gap. And I'm, I'm definitely not going to chase and try and close that. Um, but, uh, you know, coming into the, the aid stations, my husband would tell me like, oh, you know, so-and-so is so far behind you and whatever. But by the time we got to like the final miles, they were starting to get a little bit of a gap in the, the first, second, third place. So I figured I was pretty safe where I was and I was still moving really strong. So yeah. you were, and you know, I'm sure you didn't sit down and watch the recording of all 30 hours of the live feed, but if you had listened to what everybody was talking about around, you know, the last couple hours of the race, it was like, you were this relatively, un I won't say unknown, but you weren't on anybody's radar for a large part of the race. And they were like, Elsa McDonald, is she actually, is she moving up? She's in, I think she's in third. I think she's in second. And Carolyn and I are doing all of this back and forth too. And it was, it was so cool to just have you kind of, at least from our perspective, sneak up and, and, and really, you know, just really solidly run into the finish. Um, just a little pause for those of our listeners that you mentioned how a top 10 finish is very significant at Western States. And the reason it's significant is that um, the top 10 finishers get an automatic entry the next year. Uh, Don't have to qualify. Don't have to get a golden ticket, but I wasn't aware that the top three go to UTMB. Mm -hmm. So is that for 2023 or is that for 2022? That's for 2023. For 2023. Okay. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, You mentioned that it's, it's a 90 mile warm up for a 10 mile race, which I think anyone who's like run a marathon, right? It's a 20 mile warm up for a six mile race. Like very, very similar. Are you monitoring anything like your heart rate or is mm. it just truly a perceived effort? How do you monitor like, no, I'm still in my warm up. It's only mile 85. I'm still just completing my warm up. Um, what are you looking at to, to sort of ensure that you're in that right zone? Uh, for me, it was perceived effort from start to finish. I didn't use heart rate or anything like that. So, so like a zero to 10 scale or how does that go down in your head? I want to stay in like zone one, two, like kind of that warm up intensity. Yeah. No heavy <laughs> yeah. breathing, no burning legs kind of feeling. That's right. I, I, I want yeah. to be able to talk and my breath to not be audible. And I kind of know like if, if you're coming up on people in an ultra, if, if they're struggling to breathe or they're struggling to talk, they're probably going to fall apart. Right. And you could hear that as you pass them or you as you join that. them, but you can hear that in their voice. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was me on the escarpment in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I bet most people are breathing heavy going up that escarpment. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> yeah. So 
again, for our road running listeners, like break that down for us in, in terms of pace. Like what is a, assuming we're on a flat, like what is a, a pace that you're running where you feel you're in zone one? Like I imagine it's pretty quick because then, you know, you get into hills and, and stuff like that. And are you even running all the time to stay in zone one or do you have to walk? In an ultra, no, I'm, I'm definitely hiking lots on flats. Oh. I could do it. Yeah, no problem. Probably I could probably run like a five minute kilometer and, and be able to talk. No problem. But um, in an ultra, as soon as you hit a hill, like I didn't run any of the hills in Western States. I power hiked them all the steep ones. Anyway, if there was a gradual hill, yeah, I would do like a, a bit of a shuffle. But um, as soon as I, I felt my heart rate getting a little bit elevated, I would dial back the pace. Yeah, that's the dirty little secret of ultra running is there's a hell of a lot of power hiking. <laughs> yeah. And, and so obviously you practice power hiking in your training? Oh yeah, lots. I mean, I, I live in the Rockies. A lot of the, the yeah. terrain around here is too steep to to run up. Now I do run up them too, just to, if I'm doing hard effort. But for the most part, like for races like UTMB and uh, some of the things I've done around, like some of the FKTs I've done around uh, uh, the Banff Canmore area, it's you, you power hike the steep climbs. Okay. Yeah. I think that's something that road runners, or maybe it's just me, like don't fully appreciate. Cause I think like, holy smokes are running like 160 kilometers. Like this is so crazy. Like how are they so fit? But I'm, I'm not picturing that there would be sections of power hiking. I'm really not. So, well, and that's where the difference to say a track record or like Dave running across the country, you know, but even though there, there's, there's hills when your race has a lot of mountains in it, you have to go on perceived effort, which it's kind of like, I think of it like a bike, right? Like you've got to gear down <laughs> when you're yeah, going up exactly. those, those deep hills, right? Or else you're going to blow up and you're not going to be able to do any more hills. Yeah, no, that's a good comparison. Yeah. It's interesting to hear though, that even as an elite runner who finishes second, there's, you didn't run any of the hills. That's actually really yeah. interesting. I would have thought, you know, there'd be a bit more, but, um, so again, my mind's going in all different directions as, as we talk here, let's talk about poles for a second. So UTMB poles, Western States, no poles allowed. Are you a pole runner? Do you actually appreciate not even being allowed to have poles or did you miss them at all? I'm wondering where you, where you stand with those. I didn't miss them in Western States. I don't think they would have been necessary in Western States. Definitely they're useful at UTMB and anything with that amount of climbing and the UTMB, like the, the hills are significantly steep. Like we're talking like vertical kilometers kind of things. Um, so they're definitely helpful in those situations. But if it, if the hills only lasting, I don't know, like maybe two or three K and it's over with within a half, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, like, I would rather go without you poles. Miss them. Yeah. No, I didn't miss them. Okay. And another, another stupid <laughs> question from Carolyn, like, I just feel like I'm no, asking good. so many dumb questions, but uh, why? So it's a rule that at mm -hmm. Western States that you can't have poles. How come? I don't actually know. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've heard conversations on, on other podcasts and such that to keep it, you know, consistent with like when people are comparing times from the 1980s and 90s to now, you know, they want to kind of keep it consistent. I don't know if there's any other reason, but yeah, it's, it's a rule. You're not allowed to use pulse okay. at States. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that last mile. Okay, so coming into Placer, you know, track, uh, what were you feeling? What were you thinking as in that last 10 minutes? 
Uh, the, the last mile is definitely an emotional high because you're, you're done. Like you're essentially done. And there's so much energy on the course for those last couple of miles. Um, you go across uh, what they call no hands bridge. And then there's a small aid station, probably like a mile and a half out from the finish. And it's just a party there. And uh, people will run with you. So I had a cameraman running beside me for those portions of the, of the course. And uh, it's, it's actually a very tricky part of the course too, because even though you're running, you're run, actually running through a subdivision, it's all pavement, but it's significantly steep, like not runnable. Like I, so I was hiking those sections on the pavement through the, through the, um, the subdivision. And because I knew that from 2018, I thought I need to be prepared for this. And that's where I really appreciated the carbon shoe too, because there's nothing worse than running on uh, on pavement with um, our, our hard trail trail shoe. So it was really nice to finish those last miles in the in the carbon shoe because it just it felt very fast in those sections. But yeah, lots of energy in the last portion of the course. The people in the subdivision uh, that live there are are there cheering on all the athletes and everything along the way. So just it's just a party. That last mile is a party. So at that point, you're not thinking about um, how sore your body is. You're just thinking about like, wow, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to absorb all this energy. And then the energy on the track is just so uplifting. And then when you get to finish, you finally get to like stop and you can take your shoes off and just oh. enjoy, <laughs> Kevin, right? enjoy what you've done. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And it was like, what time of the, the night was this? Cause you came in in the dark. Uh, what time was it? 11 p.m. 11 p.m. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, so it was 1, 1 a.m. For, for me. So I stayed up yeah. to 1 a.m. Yeah. for you. Like that's, that's very past my bedtime. <laughs> you should feel so honored, Elsa. How exciting <laughs> this was. <laughs> um, yeah. But again, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, you've got a birthday coming up in a few days. You're going to be turning 42. Uh, you're 41 years old. You, you had said, you know, earlier on, like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to try to run with, you know, younger, fitter, like I know how experienced a lot of these people are in the race. So I'm going to let them go. Um, you come second in this very prestigious race at almost 42 years old. Uh, two months, three months before that, you had outright won Whiskey Basin, right? Beat all the men, beat all the women. <laughs> Where are you at kind of mindset wise with your age like let's just go there and talk yeah. about it yeah yeah well it has it's been a, a it's a good question actually because the last couple of years if i if i'm not hitting my target paces in a workout stuff like that i think oh it's i'm older and i'm slowing down and i don't know how much time i have left in this sport and and even though like sometimes i think that i think i, I do still have a, a lot left to to give and i'm not going to stop trying just because i'm getting older but yeah, it, it was kind of a reality check that, you know, age is just a number and you don't have to let it be your limiting factor. So after this race, I'm like, you know what, I can, I can keep striving. I can stay up there with those young women, it, it, especially in the sport of ultra running. Like maybe I'm slowing down in my 10K and my marathon or whatever, but in the sports of ultra running, I think that um, age isn't as much of a factor as it is in, in the shorter distance races. And look at how, like you took three hours off your time from 2018, four years ago when you were 37 years old. And it sounds like a lot of it was because of the experience and the wisdom mm -hmm. that you're bringing to it, right? So it can actually be an asset. Oh, definitely. Experience-wise, definitely an asset. Um, definitely smarter going into this race. Was I any fitter? Probably not. Mentally stronger, yes, but just wiser, yeah. Yeah. And it just goes back to the execution. Like we've talked about this with 
with Roadrunners too. It's like that execution, you could be as fit as a fiddle, but if you screw up the execution, then you blow up and there's no coming back. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you finish, let's, let's head back to again to the, you, you finish the race with your classic arms out. I got a screenshot of you underneath that, that clock. And then you sat down to do your interview and they asked you how you were feeling. And, and I loved how you just said, I'm really, really proud. And, <laughs> and you absolutely should, should be, and, um, you know, had every right to say that, but I loved how you just held that and you allowed yourself to really be proud of yourself. And, you know, what else was, were you thinking at that point? What were you celebrating in your mind at, at the finish line? I think just that the fact that I had just run a hundred miles, I had, I was really proud of the fact that I had executed my race as I had planned. I stuck yeah. to the plan and that it all worked out for me. And I, I realized uh, that my patience and my persistence really paid off. And I'm, I'm, I was just really happy that I stuck to my plan and just soaking it all in, like to finish second at Western yeah. States was something that I didn't even think about. I didn't, I could only dream of that. Like I remember watching this race years ago before I was an ultra runner thinking exactly what you think, Carol is like, how do people run a hundred miles? Like, this <laughs> is crazy. But I was absolutely fascinated by this race. And I'm like, people are not only like, running a hundred miles, but they're doing it very quickly and like to do it in, you know, 16, 17, 18 hours. So yes. just to, to think back that I was, um, you know, to those days being fascinated by this race and, and now being one of those girls on the podium, it was like, holy cow, like this is a yeah. big deal. <laughs> Well, going back to the confidence question we asked you in the beginning, right? Like, how do you have the confidence to taper for so long and to listen to your body? Like, does this sort of give you a little bit of confidence going into whatever's next for you? Definitely. Um, I have unfinished business at UTMB. And I think knowing I, I would like to execute a race just as I did at Western States. Now, definitely UTMB is a much harder race. It's a, a monster on a different scale, but um, I think I know what I need to do going in mentally and physically rested uh, is going to be a big, um, a big thing for UTMB. Cause I think that's where I failed the last time, but uh, yeah, definitely lots of, uh, lots of things I'll take from this race that I'll, I'll do in races going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next is next year. You'll be at UTMB. You've earned a, a spot at States next year as well. Are you going back? No, <laughs> no, no. Now, I think- why is that? To focus on UTMB next year and not not uh, try to do two big races in the same season, or why do you say that? That is definitely part of the reason. Um, doing two hundred milers back to back is very difficult. I tried that last year, and I think that also contributed to my failure at uh, UTMB. So I don't want to do that again. One year is, is plenty. Um, but also I've done Western States twice now, and there's so many other courses that I want to explore. And because you can only do so many of these giant races, right. I, uh, I, I need to move on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So less than 20 minutes after you finished, I think your interview had happened uh, trackside. Uh, another fellow Canadian, Marianne Hogan, 
came in in third place. I was losing my mind that two Canadians were in the top three at Western States. But then when I started to look into the sort of the history of it, I lost my mind even more because this is like extremely rare to have two Canadians in the top three. So how proud of your teammate? Can you call it teammate? Fellow Canadian, Marianne Hogan. And did you two share any words afterwards? I never got to talk to her much, actually. I mean, I was obviously super proud that we had two Canadians on the po- on the podium at Western States. I th- it definitely is a rarity, actually. I think other than Ellie Greenwood, I'm not sure if any other Canadian has ever podiumed at Western States. So yeah, that, that was really good. Never got to talk to her much, but she, man, she ran a phenomenal race for her first 100 miler. That was that was pretty epic. So I'm really excited to see what she's going to do going forward. I think she's got a lot of potential. Definitely, definitely. How did your recovery go post-race? Really well, actually. I think part of the whole pacing and able to um, fuel my body along the way really helped with the recovery too. So um, I didn't have much of an appetite when I finished, but definitely the next day I was able to get some good nutrition in me and, and bounce back really quickly. The longest thing that took to come back was like my feet were really sore and, and messed up. But uh, that was uh, that was probably my most limiting factor after the race. Do you ever go for a pedicure? <laughs> like whenever I go for a pedicure, I'm always like, I'm really sorry. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> I apologize to the pedicure person in advance. Um, is it, it have you do you go for pedicures or no? No, I don't. Um, we did. I was actually planning to go for one in Sacramento, but I, I actually totally forgot about it. But yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't want anybody to see these feet right now. <laughs> How long was it before you, you ran after the race? How much time off do you take? I took a full week off. Now, I probably could. I felt energetic and, and good enough that I probably could have eased back into it sooner. But another part of my race plan was to have a proper recovery so that I can mm. not you know, I don't want to put myself into a, into a hole. So even though I felt pretty good, I did take the full week off. Um, I did some yoga, made sure I did lots of stretching and stuff like that, but it it was, I was getting pretty antsy towards the end of it. So I finally, after the full week, I just eased back into it with a little bit of light strength training, like cardio. And I ran on Monday for the first time. I just short, like I ran (laughs) 8k. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I just I just got home from work, so I did a, a seven night shifts at work from Wednesday to to Wednesday. So I, I did have a couple of days off after after the race. We spent a couple of days in Sacramento. We had a a nice hotel with a pool, which was really good for soothing the muscles. It was super cold, mm-hmm. so that was nice. Um, but and I got lots of sleep there too, which is something I didn't do after the last time I did Western States. We flew home right away, and I didn't get the proper rest. Yeah, you know, I'm hearing a theme here of being rested and recovered going in and taking the time to rest and recover after. And I don't have the same level of experience as you do, but that's something I've definitely learned this year primarily. You know, Carolyn and I have talked about how people tend to take the the vacation time after the race, you know, to, to rest and recover. But my last race, I took my vacation before, the week before, and went in more rested than I ever probably have been in a race, and it worked really, really well. So I think, um, especially as we move into our 40s, some of these things, you give yourself permission, <laughs> and it actually works better. So um, you're, you're well recovered now. You just came off a night shift. Do you have anything else on your schedule for, for the next few months as far as racing goes? I, I am doing finless and 50k in September, um, okay. but I, I 
don't really set any major goals for the fall because I, I do feel like come fall, I'm, I'm very tired and that's when I usually take an off season. Um, okay. But I don't like to do any structured training over the summer because I like to leave it open for adventures. We have such a short summer here in Alberta yeah. and I just like to be able to go out with my friends and do some mountain adventures and stuff like that. So I don't want to be like, oh, right. I can't do a mountain adventure this weekend because I got to do a tempo run or whatever. So right. I, I, it's just, mm-hmm. it's fully open, fully unstructured. Um, my husband and I do lots of camping, exploring around. So we do some bike riding and yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to, um, I, I mean, I've done a lot of racing already this year, so it's kind of nice to, to have no structure for a couple of months yeah. and just adventure. I, I kind of see that as part of the extended recovery too, in a way to not just jump back into like, you know, got to prepare for this. So I think it's, you're just, what's coming up for me theme wise with, from listening to you is just, you're so wise and you're so (laughs) confident in your approach and, and how it's working for you. And you're not, it doesn't seem like you get distracted by what everybody else is doing. And so final question for you is, you know, maybe coming into this Western States, you were somewhat flying under the radar, right? Like no one was pegging you for like the win or anything like that. Um, Now that you've podiumed at Western States and now going into future races, will that change the way that you think about it in terms of like, maybe there are more eyes on you or more outside expectations on you? And how will you retain that quiet confidence that you have to trust in yourself? I think I'm just going to ignore it. (laughs) Um, You know, I, in 2018, being one of the uh, um, the top contenders at Western States, and my my, I let that kind of put pressure on me, and it it didn't fare well. So, um, going into this one where I had absolutely no pressure on me, it, it allowed me to run very relaxed and and mm-hmm. stick to my race plan. So, I think going forward, and anytime I've gone in to a race with that attitude, where I'm like, I am kind of like the the black horse, no one's gonna, no one's watching me kind of thing. It's always kind of worked out for me. So, um, especially at ultras, cause you, it's such a long race that you kind of have to go in with no extra mental stress. And going into this one too, I was like, I'm just, I'm just doing it to have a good race. I don't have anything left to prove anymore. Like I, I've gone farther than I ever thought I would as an athlete. So I'm pretty proud of my accomplishments and surprised by them that if I never win anything again or podium again I've already done a lot so and and I'm okay with that so there's a freedom in that right of just like there's Mm -hmm. nothing else to prove there's nothing left to prove and and let's just be curious and explore and see what else is possible right curious that's definitely a good way to good way to put it Mm -hmm. well if Listeners are just being introduced to you for the first time. I'm sure they're very intrigued. So where can they go to follow you and uh, learn a little bit more about what you've got coming up next? Uh, probably Instagram would be the best the best place to follow along on my adventures. So I'm just plain handle, Ilse McDonald runner. <laughs> Great. Yeah, we'll link we'll link that up in the show notes. And I can tell you that when I go for my 8K run today, I will pretend that I'm an ultra runner because ultra runners just go for 8K runs sometimes. So <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> thank you for giving me hope. Well, and thank you for taking the time to chat with us today and, and give us the play-by-play. It's, um, it was certainly exciting following along and um, we're, we're really proud of you. Thank you. 